Well, if you have a Bible, we turn to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and the title of the message is The Goodness of God. So Joshua 8, 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into thy hand, the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as you did unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall you take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city. Be ye all ready, and I and all the people that are with me will approach unto the city, and it shall come to pass, when they come out against us as at the first, that we will flee before them. For they will come out after us, until we have drawn them from the city, for they will say, Ha, they flee before us as at the first, therefore we will flee before them. And then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize upon the city." For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord shall ye do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them forth, and they went to lie in ambush and abode between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. And Joshua rose up early in the morning and numbered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the people, even the people of war that were with him, went up and drew nigh and came before the city and pitched on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and sent them to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, even all the host that was on the north of the city and their leers in wait on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And it came to pass, when the king of Ai saw it, that they hasted and rose up early. And the men of the city went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at a time appointed. So God's in control of this whole situation. Before the plain, and he wist not that there were leers and ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them, and they fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people that were in Ai were called together to pursue after them, and they pursued after Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel that went not after Israel, and they left the city open and pursued after Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in thy hand toward Ai, for I will give it into thine hand." And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand toward the city. And the ambush arose quickly out of their place, and they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. And they entered into the city and took it and hasted and set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people that fled to the wilderness turned back upon the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, then they turned again and slew the men of Ai. And the other issued out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they smote them, so they let none of them remain or escape. 
And the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness wherein they chased them, and when they were all fallen on the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned unto Ai and smote it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all that fell that day, both of men and women, were twelve thousand, even all the men of Ai. For Joshua drew not his hand back, wherewith he stretched out the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves, according unto the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. And Joshua burnt Ai, and made it an heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And the king of Ai he hanged on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree, and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city, and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remains unto this day. You know, it's rather gruesome what happened when you think about it, and people would rather not talk about the fact 12,000 people, men, women, children, were slain. They kill the king. They hang his carcass on a tree. And it sounds cruel to us today, doesn't it? But that stuff's still happening today. But we'll get into that another time. But what I do want to talk about is, you know, last time we said that the sin of Achan, it affected in chapter 7 what we read, the entire nation of Israel. So when they went to war the first time against Ai, they were totally humiliated and defeated by this little small city compared to the size of Israel. So they confidently sent just a small number of men there. It didn't work. Because their confidence in God had changed the confidence, I think, in their own ability. And the other thing we talked about is Joshua, you never read about him praying and seeking the Lord. So really, what you have there is, it's just a recipe for disaster. But what do we say was the real root cause that God allowed all of that to happen? Because he could have stopped all of that from happening. It was because of the sin of Achan. That was what caused it to happen, that open rebellion against God's clear commands. And so God had told Israel, he said, all the gold, all the silver was his, and everything else was supposed to be destroyed. But when Achan went into somebody's house, apparently, to kill them, and maybe after he did kill them, it says he saw a wedge of gold, 200 shekels of silver, and a goodly Babylonian garment. Probably looked better than my coat I got on today. That's what he saw. And instead of remembering God's command, he did what Eve did in the garden. He coveted all of it. It said when Eve saw that fruit after the devil talked to her, it says she saw that it was good. And so he listened to the devil's suggestion that, look, God's depriving you of good. He's holding back from you. And it says he took the next step. He saw it and then he coveted. He saw, he coveted, and the next thing he did is he took. So he probably took that gold and silver, I'd imagine, put it in that robe, rolled it up, stuck it under his coat, went back to his tent, and it said he dug a hole and buried it there. Said he hid it, hid all of it. He saw, he coveted, he took, and he hid. And that is the pattern of sin. We have it in the garden. Those exact words are used of Adam and Eve, and it goes all the way up to this present day. James says every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. 
And then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And so how many times does sin dress itself up, so to speak, as harmless and pleasant? There is a zookeeper. His name was Gary Richmond. And he wrote that he says, you know, raccoons go through this glandular change at about 24 months. And after that, they often will just attack their owners. And so he knew that a 30-pound raccoon was the equivalent of a 100-pound dog if you're going to get in a fight. So he was compelled to tell someone he knew, a friend named Julie, that that change, she had a pet raccoon, and he was compelled to tell her that change was going to come on that raccoon and the danger that she was in. And he said this, he says, I'll never forget her answer. This is what she said, it will be different for me. And she smiled as she added, Bandit won't hurt me, he just wouldn't. So three months later, she's having plastic surgery because of the facial laceration she got from that adult raccoon. And he attacked her, it says, for no apparent reason. And they had to let the raccoon go out into the wild. And listen, that's the way sin is, isn't it, for us? We think we can play with it, and we think that we won't receive the same judgment or punishment that others do. That's what happens to us. And God says in his word, though, your sin will find you out. Because we think it'll be different for us, and it isn't any different. I said last time, we always think that sin is going to bring us happiness, but the Bible clearly tells us that there's wages paid for sin, and the wages of sin is death. That's always what's going to happen. And like I said, Achan, the irony is, he took all that stuff, thought he had it made for life, and he never got to enjoy anything that he took, because everything he owned, all of his family, his livestock, his children, he brought that on his whole family. And he brought trouble on Israel. And that's why Joshua told him, you troubled us. And now you're going to be troubled. And so that's what sin did. And that's what those pile of rocks they piled on top of him. That's what it was a memorial, a monument to, is this is the wages of sin. Every time you see this, remember that. To avoid it, it's to put the fear of God in Israel. We need to remember, those of us in here that are living in sin, that nothing can be hidden from God. Now, you can hide it from your parents. You can hide it from other people. But he sees everything. And it says that one day, everything done in secret, whether good or evil, every work, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, is going to be brought into judgment. And that's sobering, isn't it? I just was with a man that, well, he actually passed away this morning. I was with him the other day, and I'm saying, it just brings the reality. I'm thinking this man is going to be ushered into eternity. No more chances. That's it. And when you think about it, it's a sobering thing, isn't it? That everything you do every day, the things we do that we think so lightly of, the things we say, the places we go, the things we watch. And one day, the Bible says that's all going to be brought out into the open before the Lord, like Achan's stuff was. They said they brought it out right before the Lord. That's going to be an awesome day. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So we need to remember that. But that was last week. Just a little friendly reminder. Because to this week we're going to look at the, the aspect of once sin has been dealt with, either in a church or in our own individual lives, the blessings of God begin to flow again. They do. And that's what God desires. And that's what we have here in Joshua 8. And so the first point of my sermon today and of this chapter is 
that God gives Joshua after that reassurance and Israel, reassurance, consolation, and his help. So we have that in verses 1 and 2. Look what it says there. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Speaks kindly to him. Because once Israel had dealt with the sin in their life, God's anger and his presence was no longer restricted. It flowed back. So look at the end of chapter 7 in verse 26, if you would. And it says, And they raised over Achan a great heap of stones unto this day, and it says, when they did that, when they dealt with that sin, look what it says. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. He turned from it. He's no longer angry, no longer wrathful. But his blessing, that's just what he wants, is now able to be poured out. From God's side, his anger was gone. Everything's all right between Joshua, Israel, and the Lord at this point. But Joshua didn't know that. He didn't know that yet. You know why I know? He's on his knees praying when chapter 1 happens. Look what it says, because the Lord has to tell him right there in the middle of chapter 1, arise. In other words, arise, get off your knees, go to Ai. Now, he's humbled. He's before the Lord, because he had to be discouraged. He's the leader of this group, and they had trouble, and he knew he hadn't sought the Lord, probably kicking himself because of that. Man. I knew I should do that. I knew I should always go to the Lord first and get directions on what to do because you don't read that that happened at all. And 30 people died because I didn't do that. And he is on his face, humbled before the Lord. I guarantee you he's humbled. And so many times, so we don't like to talk about and confess that we're going to fail or whatever or suffer. And a lot of times, though, we do, don't we? And a lot of times I believe God allows those failures and defeats in our life you know why? Because he wants to work a humility in us and a fear of him that that's the only way it can be worked in. It's called chastisement. So David was responsible for the sin of Bathsheba. And I would say, just like this thing with Achan, don't you think that God could have prevented that to happen? He could have stopped her from bathing out there like that. But he allowed all that to happen. He had a purpose behind it. Because God, through that, he worked a humility in David. That is the only way it could have been worked out. It was needed. And so here's what happened. And here's the change you see in David. David, his son, his favorite son, came and chased him out of Jerusalem. And it says when he left, he ascended the Mount of Olives. And when he went up, it said he had his head covered. He was barefoot, took off his shoes. He had his head down. And it says he was weeping as he's leaving. That's the humility that's being worked in. And it says all the people that went with him were weeping too. Weeping. He was brought low. And then he's walking along. And you know what happens a little later after that? Shimei. One of Saul's relatives, one of the Benjaminites, starts throwing rocks at him, throwing stones at him, and cursing David as he walked. Abishai, his right-hand man, says, hey, just give me the word. I'll go take this guy's head off. And David said this. He says, let him curse, because the Lord has said unto him, curse David. Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin do it? David said, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. And he says, it may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. Now you think about it. Think about the change. I'm saying God will a lot of times let us fail. David, that was a miserable failure in fall, wasn't it? Terrible. 
And he paid a price for it. But a lot of times God lets that happen to work. It's all things work for our good, don't they? And he worked a humility in David because think about this. What about when old Nabal, David's out in the wilderness and his men had watched over Nabal's sheep and protected him, done him a courtesy, and they just asked him, hey, can you give us some food? And what did he do? He totally insulted them, stripped those guys and sent them back half naked, you know, and humiliated them and insulted David. And what was David's reaction then? Everybody get your sword on. 400 people, 200 of you stay here with the stuff. The 400 of us, we're going to go, and there's not going to be a male on Nabal's property left alive before this day is done. And that's David. So if it wasn't for Abigail, he would have just slaughtered them all. That's David then. And look at David now. And that's the humility that's in him, the difference that God worked in him. Chastening does that, doesn't it? So Israel was chastened through AI in a way, I would say, right? And it works humility in us. Those of you that have children, isn't that the way it is? You now you can have a child that's defiant, won't do what you say, just seems to have that attitude. And, you know, when you spank them, though, and do it in the right way, don't do it in anger. Have you ever noticed, I've noticed it with my kids, all of that is gone. That pride, this humility comes there. They want to sit in your lap. They want you to speak words of encouragement to them and comfort and that's what Joshua needed at this time. That's what God gives him. He speaks such generous words of comfort. Let's read it again, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Joshua, here he is on his face before him. Fear not, Joshua, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee and arise, go up to Ai, and see, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. He tells Joshua, look, you don't have to be afraid. And fear and dismay, those two words go together many times. And what he's telling him there is dismayed. That word can mean shattered, discouraged, or terrified. He's saying, you don't need to be any of those now, Joshua. We're not going to have all that happen again. You've got things right with me. That's what the Lord's telling him. And he needed those words of comfort. He's probably overwhelmed by that defeat of Ai. And yet, God gives him those encouraging words. And many times, isn't that the case with us? So you've sinned and maybe a serious sin. Maybe it's been a serious and your heart smites you. And you get that heavy feeling, don't you? That just doesn't seem to go away. You know things aren't right between you and the Lord. And it can overwhelm you. And look, you failed the Lord and you knew you did. It wasn't something that you intended to do even necessarily. But you got caught. You were overtaken in a fault as the Bible thinks. And things just aren't going right for you. But here's what we see here. Israel took care of that sin. And when that happens to us, if we will truly repent, confess our sins and turn from it, then we'll hear God speak the same words that he spoke to Joshua. Arise, get on your feet and go take the land. It's not over with. I'm not done with you yet. I haven't cast you off. Isn't that what we see here? I think that's the lesson to be learned. If you put something there in Joshua 8 and turn over to Psalm 130, that's what we have going on in Psalm 130. A short psalm. But look what the psalmist says. He says, out of the depths. That's like the ocean. He's swallowed up by the ocean. He's overwhelmed, so to speak, because of sin. And he says, out of the depths I cried unto thee, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Because look what he goes on to say. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. That means if God was the kind of God that took account of our sins that we did and never wiped them away, 
and just kept a tab? He says, if God was like that, if thou, O Lord, if you marked iniquities, my sins, he says, O Lord, who could stand? None of us could, could we? No way. No one could. But he says, but, verse 4, God's not like that. There is forgiveness with thee. And that is the forgiveness. The only forgiveness is what it's saying there. And that's why he says that you may be feared. Because he is the only one that can grant us forgiveness. It's not going to happen any other way. As he says, so, verse 5, so he wants to have that feeling, that assurance that all things are right between him and the Lord. And look what he says, verse 5. He says, I'll wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word, that word that, hey, if you repent, you confess your sin and turn from it, I'll forgive you. He's saying, that's the word, I hope. In verse 6, he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. What does that mean? Well, the ones that watch for the morning, they know the morning's coming. They just don't know exactly when. If they didn't have a Timex, which they wouldn't have back then. So they know they're watching. And he's saying, I know I'll get things restored and I'll know things are right between me and you, Lord. And I'm waiting for that. I know it's going to happen like those that watch for the morning. And so he goes on to say in verse 7, let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem or buy back Israel, or me, or you, from all his iniquities. And that's a blessing, isn't it? He's saying God's not like that. Sometimes, have you ever been down in the depths and cried out to the Lord and you repented, but you still, you're just waiting for God to give that in your heart where you know all things are right? Because it doesn't always happen right away. That's been my experience. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But God will do it because his word is true. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the word we hope in. And it says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us and cleanse us. Praise the Lord. So if you turn back to Joshua 8. You know, the other things we, we see in these first two verses is that God not only gives him comfort and assurance, but he also shows my power is not left. It is still with you. And that's what he says. He tells him the same assurance he gives him for Ai is the same thing he said almost word for word for what was going to happen to Jericho. He gives them directions. You need to set an ambush. And he says, you will have good success. Just do what I say. And that's what they did, didn't they? Just like with Jericho. And everything worked out. And here's the point. Here's the message we should get from that. And the point is that we need God's power in our lives, don't we? For all we do, for trust Him for His promises, we need His power in our lives for that. To grow in holiness, we need His power for that and to accomplish His will. And the other thing is, we need him and his power in our lives, not just for the Jerichos, the huge insurmountable walls, but also for the what we think are the little AIs, don't we? We can't take anything for granted. You know, George Mueller said he prayed about everything, big or small. He said nothing was too small to take to the Lord, and that's the way he did. Thousands and thousands of answers to prayer, he would record every one of them. And that's the way it is. Because when Israel had sinned and lost God's presence in their life, they come before Ai, they could have wiped that place out. And instead, they're running down that hill like scared chickens, weren't they? That's the way it was. But the second thing I want to see here is that the goodness and generosity of God is poured out on his people. And that's where we get the title of the message. Because look what we have in verse 2. And it says, 
He tells Joshua, you shall do to Ai and her king as you did unto Jericho and her king. And look what he says there. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle out thereof shall you take for a prey unto yourselves. He's going to bless them this time. And look down in verse 27, back in verse 27, chapter 8. He tells them there, he says, only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves according unto the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. So we see a total reversal here of what happened at Jericho. Everything belonged to God at Jericho, the silver, the gold, the brass and iron. All of that, it said, went into the treasury of the Lord. It was his. Everything else was burned. Harem, it's called. Devoted to God for destruction. So everything was devoted to God. Some went into the treasury. Some of it was devoted and burned. That's what was supposed to happen. But here at Ai, guess what? The people take all of the spoils. So they here, when they come across gold and silver, it's theirs. He's given it to them. The livestock is there. Any garments they would find, they can take and wear. No problem. So what is happening? God is generously providing for his people here. And you think about that. What is that telling us here? God's goodness and generosity. That tells us that Achan was a fool. Because what do we know about God? God always provides for his people, doesn't he? So Achan's covetousness was totally unnecessary, wasn't it? Totally unnecessary. One writer said this, he says, God never seeks to impoverish his people. It is only as his people lose sight of his generosity, his provision, his goodness, that the cancer of covetousness consumes them. Only when you lose sight of that. And how many times have saints gotten themselves into bad financial situations or in debt that just hangs over their heads because they're impatient and unwilling to wait for God's timing and provision? Amen? Mm. So they see, they covet, and they got a credit card that allows them to, and they take and next thing you know, they're over their head. And everything they earn isn't for them or for someone else. It's for the lender. Because it is still true that the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's what it says in the Bible. And all we have to do is wait. Jesus said this. He says, for after all these things, all the things that we think we need, the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. God knows. He says, but if you'll just seek first the kingdom of God, just obey him, put him first, and his righteousness. He says, all these things, Jesus promises that, your Lord and Savior, the one that you're trusting is going to take you into heaven. He says, all these things shall be added unto you. And he also said, it's your heavenly Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so God's intention to Israel was always for good. All they had to do was bypass that first city. That's God. That's dedicated to God, just like our money should be. It's not all ours. So a portion of what you get should be set aside to the Lord. It's the Lord's. But God's intention was to do us good. As one man said, what's going on here is serpent theology. And that's the theology that only points out the one restriction that God has placed on Adam and Eve in the garden and leaves out all the ample provision 
So it points out, here's one tree you can't eat of. And that's what the devil did. But he leaves out all the ones they could. God had abundantly supplied everything they need. And here's what it says in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent, he was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So he just said, This one tree, just leave it alone. All the rest of them are yours. The devil doesn't talk about it that way, does he? And so what's he doing? He's calling into question the generosity and the goodness of God. Now, what I like to talk about for the rest of my time is the goodness of God. Because it's demonstrated here to the Israelites in the city of Ai. He generously, he gives them, he commanded that they take the spoil. And so the Bible is filled with references to the goodness of God. And so what does it mean when we say that God is good? The most common meaning of goodness, there's a lot of ways you could get into this and you could get all theological about it. But the basic thing, the basic meaning and the most common use of God being good and his goodness is the intention and purpose to benefit others. It's what's known as benevolence. You have good intentions towards someone. You're benevolent. You want to do them good. And God is good. That is his nature. And he is the source of any goodness you see in this world, whether it's man or any goodness, comes from God. He's the source of it all. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That's God. He's the source of everything we have that's good. Thomas Manton, a Puritan, said this, God is essentially good, but he's not only good, but God is goodness itself. He is infinitely good. The creature's good, us, is just but a drop. But there's an infinite ocean of God's goodness. He is eternally and unchangeably good. So I know people are like, oh, the goodness of God. You know what's amazing to me is you put people to sleep when you talk about God's love, his goodness, his mercy. You do. I've I've seen it here. I've seen it in prison. It's funny to me. People want to have sugar sticks, but, you know, when you talk about God's goodness, it's like boring. Oh, well, we know he's good. Really? Do we really know that? But he is. Now, when you talk about a man and say he's a good man, what do you mean generally when you say that? You mean somebody that he's kind, he's generous, just, he's going to do the right thing, willing to help somebody out, and he's somebody you can trust. Isn't that who you would generally consider somebody that you would say, well, yeah, he's a good man? But any man that is like that, the only reason he has those characteristics and traits is why? Because it comes from who? Comes from God. Now, listen, A.W. Tozer says this. He says, to say God is good is to say, here is our God. He's kind-hearted, gracious, good-natured, and has benevolent intentions. Now, Tozer said this, God is cordial, and cordial means warm and friendly. He's cordial God, he's gracious, and his intentions are kind and benevolent. Now, I like that, because do we typically think of God as being warm and friendly? I don't think so. It's almost like, well, you shouldn't say that. And I don't mean friendly in the sense like he's your best buddy, obviously, but friendly in the sense that, like Tozer said, you think about the Lord Jesus. If he walked in here 
like he did back in, the, in Palestine? You think that he would walk up to Jesus and he would get this? No, seriously. You think you find Jesus in a bad mood? Where he wasn't warm and inviting and welcome? I mean, isn't that what we think of a Christian as being? I'm saying, so if we think we should be that way, if Jesus tells us that we should salute our enemies, say, hey, how you doing? Why wouldn't he be that way? He's doing what? He's representing the Father. I believe Jesus would have been warm and cordial, as he says. I really do. And he hasn't changed. So I'm saying that's what a good person is. I mean, if you had somebody in your house that's grumpy all the time, or in church that, man, you can't get a, how you doing? I mean, you'd be like, what's wrong? There's something not right here. God's not that way. He is not that way. So to say, though, that God is good, it doesn't mean, I just want to say this briefly, it doesn't mean he's going to overlook sin because it's because he is good that he will judge sin and can't overlook it. So Hebrews 1.9 says this of Jesus, a cordial person ate with sinners, but it says this of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Because he wouldn't be good, God wouldn't be good if he just let sin exist and just go on and watch the effects of sin in this world. He wouldn't call a judge. Like they said, these guys, they murder their parents. They come into the courtroom because they're a couple of rich brats. What if the judge said then, yeah, you brutally murdered your own parents for no reason other than you just wanted their money and to steal some things. And they come in there and the plea is, well, you know, their shoes were tied too tight when they were kids. And they can't think straight. And the judge is like, all right, well, we'll just let you go because I, I know you're really good kids. I mean, you say that judge is corrupt. He's not good. And so that's God. He can't overlook sin. But when we think of the goodness of God, what do we think of? We think of his generosity, his mercy, his grace, his provision and forgiveness. Isn't that what you think of when you think that God is good? So when Moses asked God, he asked him, he said, will you show me your glory? And here's what the Lord said to him. He says, I myself, he says, I'll make all my goodness, the Lord says, I'll make all of my goodness, Exodus 33, I'll make all of my goodness to pass before you. And that's when it happens down in verse 34. The Lord passed by in front of him, and here's what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord God, here's what his goodness is. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so that's what it means about God's goodness. Those attributes are what make God good. His compassion, his long-suffering, his loving kindness, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his justice, his willingness to forgive those who repent, and his mercy on us, undeserving sinners, send his son to die on our behalf. That is what makes God good. That is the goodness of God. And God said he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. His goodness abounds and it overflows. Psalm 33, 5 says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. It's his nature to be good, and his goodness fills the entire earth. And it's something that everybody experiences. Even sinners experience the goodness of God, but especially his saints. We've heard this verse before. What does it say we can do? We, his saints, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste 
and see that the Lord is Taste and see. We can experience that. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. That's, right. That's how you're going to taste and see. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints. He says, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But listen to what he says. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Because God will give it to those that fear him and seek him. He says they will not lack any good thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you turn over to Psalm 145, you got to let these words sink in here. Psalm 145, beginning in verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. And look what it says in verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercy are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all that fall and raises up all those that have been bowed down. Isn't that what happened to Joshua and Israel? That's what God does. But look what it says, verse 15, the eyes of all wait upon thee and you give them their meat in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is near unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. So it says the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all of his works. And he says in verses 14 to 16 that everybody, that's us and the animals, that's the birds, the goats way up high in the mountains, all of them are looking to him to supply them with something to eat and a place to sleep. That's what he's doing. And his goodness, it's saying, causes him to provide for everybody. Doesn't it say he causes that rain and sun that falls on the just and the unjust, doesn't it? So you think about that. God's goodness is us every day and we take it for granted. I mean, we may bless our food, but even that can just become a ritual, doesn't it? But you think about it. Every meal that we eat, every child that has been born in this church and is still here, our safety, our health, good jobs that we have, all of that comes from what? We don't deserve any of it, if you want to say it that way. It's all a result of what? The goodness of God. And how many times do we take a minute to think about that? Me included. Just so many things we take for granted. How many of you ever heard the song, Count Your Blessings? Count Your Blessings. It goes like this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, and when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend, help and comfort give you, you to your journey's end. 
And the chorus says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. And that's what he wants us to do, to acknowledge his goodness that he's given us. And so, you know, Psalm 107, we're not going to read that, not going to turn to it, but it gives four examples of the goodness of God being shown to people that are in distress. It talks about those that were destitute and hungry and thirsty and ready to perish. Those that had rebelled against God and it said they were brought into bondage as a result. Those that had sinned and were afflicted with an illness that had them down to death's door. And it talks about those that are out in a ship and a great tempest comes that they know they're going to perish. And every single one of those cases, it said in their distress, oh, it looks like there's no way out of this situation we're in. It says they cried out unto the Lord. And what does it say? God just said too bad. No, it says he heard them and came and delivered them. And here's what the psalmist says at the end of every one of those examples. The same thing. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And how many times have we as Christians, especially if we're trusting the Lord, been in situations like that, distressful situations that it seemed like there is no way out. And we cry out to the Lord. You think he doesn't hear that? He does. How many times has he delivered us from car accidents, sliding on ice, healings, financial trials, problems in our families? I mean, I could tell you some things for me personally. I've been in some times in my life, it was so dark, I couldn't imagine it being any darker. God seemed a million miles away. And I cried out to him in my distress. He has always come. That's the way God is. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. But how many times do we take his goodness for granted? And what I want to say is this. If you don't listen to anything else, wake up now. But what I'm saying is we have got to commit ourselves, commit ourselves to the goodness of God. Because that is the one thing that the devil wants to steal from you, that God is good and that he extends his goodness to you. I'm saying we've got to commit ourselves and trust that God only does good for his children. I'm saying people fall asleep to talk about the goodness of God, but you need to listen to that because that is where the devil attacked Adam and Eve. And that's where he's going to attack all of us, that he's really not going to be good towards you. So that takes it out of the theological God is good. No, it's not God is good. God is great. Thank you for the food, all that. No, his goodness is extended towards us. We have to believe that. We've got to trust in that. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And listen to what Psalm 84.11 says. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's his promise. His goodness will come your way if you just walk uprightly. And we know that no good thing will he withhold. Why? Because here's the gospel. He didn't withhold his own dear son for you if you're a Christian. Couldn't have had a greater gift to give you. Everything else is beneath that. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely Give us all things. He's saying if he didn't withhold Jesus, 
and had to watch him suffer and die the most agonizing death, have to listen to him cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You want to hear your own child say that? He said, he didn't spare him from that. He's not going to spare any good thing for those that walk uprightly. That's what he says. He'll give us everything we need. And what we need to see is it is God's nature, infinitely, inexhaustible. It is His nature to do good. Psalm 119 says, Thou art good and doest good. And we see that in the New Testament, lived out. Because what does it say about our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 10, 38? That God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That's God in action. That's God's goodness in action. You read the gospel and Jesus provided for people. He provided bread. He provided deliverance from spirits, evil spirits that were tormenting them. He hasn't stopped doing that. Healing of every sort. Ought not this woman? He's saying, ought not. I'm going to do it. She's a daughter of Abraham. She's not going to stay like this. I'm going to do good to her. Amen. Should God do good or evil? What should you do on the Sabbath? And you're going to complain that I'm trying to do good to this man and heal this man with a withered hand? It's God's nature to do good. I'm trying to get that home. And it's the Father. Like I said, He's acting out. It says, for God was with Him. So Jesus sought the power of God. That's what it took. Because like I said, there's nothing going to happen. Without me, you could do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit and that power, nothing was going to happen. You couldn't do good in a Christian sense, could you? You can't show true love without that power in your life, in my life. And so that's what it takes. But God was with him. The Father was shown through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 31 says, oh, how great is thy goodness which it says God has laid up. It's in store. He's just waiting to pour it out. Oh, how great is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. He's saying you're trusting the Lord for whatever. Before the sons of men, people see you're in a trial. It says God has stored up his goodness. He's going to pour it out on you. And you'll see that deliverance. That's what his word says. The devil can get you to doubt or me to doubt the goodness of God toward us because of the circumstances we're in, whatever they are. He's got you. He's got you. And he'll conquer you. And so I'm saying we have got to commit ourselves and trust that God is good no matter how dark it looks. And if you would, please, if you can find it, if you would please turn to Nahum back there in the Old Testament. If you find Habakkuk, it's right near there. If you find Micah, just you're real close to. Nahum's not a big book. His brother Hamilton used to always say it's probably in the clean pages of your Bible. And this is just one short verse, but I'd like us to see it. Nahum 1.7. But look at Nahum 1.7. Look what it says. It says what? The Lord is good. And that's what we've been talking about. And His goodness is what? A stronghold when? In the day of trouble. And what does it say? He knows them that what? Trust in him. So what is it telling us there? You say, man, I'm in trouble. I need somewhere to go. 
And he's saying God's goodness is that it's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And I'm saying that is when times are bad. That's when you have to say the stronghold I'm in is I know I may be confused about what's going on right now. I don't understand what to do, why this is happening, why this keeps going on. But I am going to go into the stronghold of God's goodness. He is good, benevolent. He wants to do me good. He promises Jesus won about doing good. I can trust in that. That he will deliver me. And that's the people he knows, the ones that are going to trust him in that way. So there was a pastor, a godly pastor in England a few years back, Holy Trinity Church. His church was in Cambridge in England, and there was a big college there, a lot of bright students. But the university students, he'd invite them over to his house for tea, and they'd ask him questions. He invited him. He said, you got any questions on spiritual truth? I'd like you to ask. That's, that was what it was all about. I'd like you to ask me. So one student asked him, he says, how do you maintain a close walk with God? And here was his answer. He said, by constantly meditating on the goodness of God and on our great deliverance from that punishment which our sins deserve. Those are the two things he said that will maintain a close walk with God. He says, keeping both of these in mind, we shall find ourselves advancing on our course. We shall feel the presence of God. We shall experience his love. We shall live in the enjoyment of his favor and in the hope of his grace. And he said, meditation is the grand means of growth and grace. But he says he meditated constantly on the goodness of God and the salvation that he promised. Interesting, isn't it? That wouldn't have been the answer you would have expected. How do you maintain a close walk with God? You probably would have said all fast and pray, you know, weeks on end. But no, he says meditating on God's goodness. And he said that's what brought him the presence of God, the experience of his love, his favor, and the hope of his grace. And don't we want that in our lives? Saying we need to do a, do a concordant search on the goodness of God. So things can look dark at times, can't they? And it's a temptation then, a strong temptation many times to doubt the goodness of God. And look at the life of Joseph. It was there for an example for us. So he's first thrown into a pit by his brothers, made a slave. Then he's a prisoner in Egypt. And he could have doubted the goodness of God if anybody had a right to. Because I would say most people in his shoes would have said, why am I going to continue to trust in the goodness of God? Look what it's gotten me to serve him in trying to walk a holy walk. I resist adultery, and the next thing I know, I'm down in this prison. One of the Psalms, it talks about they put fetters on his feet. They hurt him. He's physically hurting. And he's down in that dungeon, and then he interprets a dream. It seems like he's going to get out. And in prison, they call it a two-year flop. He's put back in, and his hopes are dashed. If anybody could doubt the goodness of God, it would have been him. But he steadfastly held on to it, that God's hand was on him, even if the circumstances were pointing the other way, because they were for him. And Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, when we can't trace God's hand, we can trust his heart. Because we've clearly shown through the Bible that God is good, and he's good towards all. So we don't have to doubt that he's willing, and it's abounding from him. That's his nature. It's infinite, inexhaustible. He wants to show his goodness to every creature. And he does. And Paul wrote this, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. 
That's what it says in the Bible. And if you would just turn back to Genesis, you'll have an easier time finding this. Genesis 45. So Joseph is raised up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he finally shows himself to his brethren. And look what it says in Genesis 45, verses 5 to 9. He tells his brothers this when they realize who he is. Verse 5, he says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. He says, You sold me hither, but God is the one that sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years that are still coming, into which there shall be earring or harvest. And verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but who? But God. He keeps saying, God's the one. God's the one. You meant this, but God did this. God's the one in control. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler through all the land of Egypt. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me and tarry ye not. And so what a testimony, not only to the sovereignty of God, but also to the goodness of God, because God's in control of everything that went on. As bad as that was for Joseph, God's plan was to do him good in the end and his brother's good in the end, wasn't it? And so just turn over a few more chapters over to chapter 50. Look in chapter 50 and verse 15, and it said, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly recry us all the evil which we did unto him. But look down his answer in verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? And look at verse 20. He says, But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it, what? Unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So you may have people that are looking to do you harm. You may feel like your trials are overwhelming like Joseph and you're in total darkness. But if you'll just trust in the goodness of God and keep your life honest and upright, no good thing will he withhold to him that walks uprightly. That is a condition there. But if you'll do that, what does it say? God will bring you out of whatever you're in. He did Joseph. Couldn't have been better for him. And I guarantee you that all those trials, all that darkness, all that prison was just a distant memory. And I'm sure it did a work in him like we talked about earlier, didn't it? A work of humility, a work of endurance in his heart, a work to say, hey, I trusted you. And here's the result of what happened. I know his testimony would have been, I was in a nightmare situation. Couldn't have been any worse, but yet I saw the goodness and faithfulness of God in the end. That'll be his testimony if you talk to him in heaven. And that's also going to be the testimony of another missionary, Alan Gardner, that I read about. And he was in a boating accident. And he drowned. And they found his boat on the shore overturned. And near him or in on his coat, they found his diary. It was also discovered. And when they read his diary, it spoke over and over again about his hunger. He was hungry. He didn't have warm clothes. Didn't have a warm place to sleep. The persecution he went through as a missionary and his suffering. All of those things he experienced. And yet it says the very last entry in his diary was this. 
I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, that's somebody that got the message, isn't it? It really is. Listen to what Mr. Spurgeon said again. He said, when others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord because he is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that is good. And listen to what Mr. Spurgeon said. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Isn't that what I'm saying? You can't allow that to happen, to question God's goodness towards you. You'll be sunk. He says, whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that God is good and his nature is always the same. He will always be good. So I'm saying today, we need to commit ourselves and trust our souls into the hands of the goodness of God. Amen? Because, listen, what we have to believe and trust in, he puts us in trials. We have to believe that he loves us, don't we? And only wants good for us. And it says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Now, I didn't feel that way when he's convicting me and I'm in tears and I'm in agony, you know, going through this thing about coming to him. But that was his goodness that was working in me and drawing him to him. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. That's what causes us to repent when he deals with us. And his chastening, it says, your father's chasing them, so they got to have a little peace in the household. But God, he's not worried about that. He says he chastens us for our profit, our good. He's a father that only has our good in mind. So even in that, all things he has towards us, even when he's correcting us so we'll be partakers of his holiness, it's still his goodness extended towards us. Amen? His goodness, that's what's going to lead us into heaven. Y'all know this, Psalm 23, 6. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if you're God's child, there is not a day in your life that his goodness is not at work in your life, following you, caring for you, watching over you. He says, surely, it's a sure thing. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And it's going to lead me somewhere because I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of that. Because his goodness will bring us there, won't it? It will. Amen. And we'll say, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. And Father, thank you, Lord, for showing us today. The Lord, I ask you to impress on all of our hearts that you are good, forever good, and that you have good and kind intentions towards us, your people, Lord, even in your correction. And I ask you, Father, that you'll allow all of us to see that we have all partaken of your goodness, even the people that don't know you in here, Lord, that you'll open their eyes to see that you've been good and kind to them, giving them much more than they deserve. And I ask you to cause that to lead them to repentance. And we're so thankful, Lord, in the goodness that you've shown in sending your only son to die on our behalf and shed that blood, that in your goodness we can be cleansed and filled with your Holy Spirit and enjoy your presence. We thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you for the goodness you've given us, that you're good all the time. Amen. In Jesus' name.